Welcome to Series 5 of the Bible and Me podcast from Precept Ministries UK. The series that uses incredible life stories to give God the glory. Before we dive into this week's episode, if you haven't done so already, be sure to click that subscribe button so that you don't miss out on any of the amazing testimonies in the future. And now, without further ado, here's the podcast. Well, it is a real uh, delight to welcome Dr. Garth Gilmore to the program today. Uh, Garth is the Executive Director of CMJ in Israel, the Church's Ministry Among Jewish People, founded in 1809 and established in Jerusalem in 1833. Garth grew up in South Africa, but recently has lived both in the UK and in Israel. He has a master's uh, degree from Hebrew University, uh, which is based in Jerusalem, in biblical archaeology and a doctorate in the same subject from Oxford University. He's married to Vibka and currently lives in Jerusalem. Garth, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much, Nigel. Now, Garth, you grew up in Cape Town, South Africa. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your your mum was was a Brit, your dad was South African. Uh, How did you come to faith in Christ? First question. Secondly, why do you follow Jesus? Great questions, thank you. Good to be here. Uh, Nigel, well, how did I come to faith in Christ? I think, uh, like many people, I, I uh, grew up, had a troubled childhood. You know, I used to think, um, I used to talk about my family being a dysfunctional family, and then I met other people and realized that actually uh, there's very few functional families out there. Um, but I grew up in a typical, difficult family setup, and um, I, uh, I, I, I was at a posh private school. Um, where we had chapel every day, and it was a bit dry and dusty. And somehow, quite miraculously, uh, and nothing to do with school, uh, I came to faith in Jesus in my final year of high school uh, and uh, committed my life to him. It had been a long process. I had been introduced to him years before uh, at a camp I used to go to over the New Year period down by the seaside. Um, but uh, the seed that uh, was planted then germinated and finally started producing fruit in, in, in my final year of high school. Funnily enough, though, I did not intend for this on the 29th of February in 1976. So I have a, a, a celebration of my, of my born-again birthday once every four years. Uh, and why do I follow Jesus? Um, <laughs> why not? Uh, it's, 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 I think... You, one gains an awareness as you as you follow the Lord, as you invite Jesus into your life, not just once but daily, uh, as you're filled with the Spirit, not just once but daily. There is a continuing, overwhelming sense that we were not made to walk alone, that we were not made to live our lives without Jesus, that God made us to walk with Him in the garden. And that when we do not walk with him, we are sometimes somehow deficient, uh, unfulfilled, um, as well as unrighteous. And there is that sense that once you have known the, the cleanness and the cleansing and the joy of walking with the Lord in faith and in purity, uh, when you've been washed clean with the blood of Jesus through his sacrifice on the cross, that you, you never want that to go away. I mean... I've been, you know, up and down in the last, whatever it is, 40 years, 45 nearly. But (laughs) there's always this desire to get back to basics. 
And Jesus is great. He welcomes you back. Mm. And I have been the one that he's left the 99 for more than once. And I am so grateful. Mm. Now, I sense as you're saying that there may be somebody listening to this who would love what you have just described. What would you say to that person listening now? Well, Garth, I, I want that. I want that life. I want to have that joy in my heart that you've just described. What would you say to them right now? I think it's very simple. I think sometimes we in the church have overcomplicated this whole thing. I think it's very interesting in Mark's gospel, the very first chapter amongst the very first verses, Jesus comes and he says, my ministry is about to start. He actually says, the time has come. Here comes God's kingdom and change your hearts and your lives and believe this good news. And then he goes and he calls his first disciples. And we think, oh, well, what did he say? Did know? Was there a sinner's prayer? Did they have to learn, you know, to recite? He said two words. He said, follow me. That's all he said. Follow me. And we've overcomplicated it. It's actually very simple. If we just are prepared to listen to those two words that Jesus says to every single one of us on the planet, follow me. And we take him at his word and we follow him. He will lead us, guide us, forgive us. He will cleanse us. He will free us from sin. He will take us to the cross. He will, he will fill us with his Holy Spirit. He'll give us joy unspeakable. He will provide us with everything we need for life and godliness. Mm. And we will never, ever regret that. Wow. <laughs> well, there you go. If you have been listening to that, uh, follow the Lord Jesus. And you find out about him primarily in the, in the Bible, of course. Uh, I know that is something that we're going to talk about in a minute, about mm. your love of the Word of God. Uh, but as a ministry, that's what we seek to do too, to help you to uh, find out about Jesus by giving you the skills and the tools to read and study the Bible. Now, um, after leaving school, you went uh, to the University of Cape Town. Uh, you left there after a year of studying law. Uh, you did two years compulsory military service, a man after my own heart, although I it wasn't compulsory for me in the UK. I joined out of choice, but you had to do that, obviously. Uh, you then became a youth worker and trained for the Anglican ministry in South Africa. So how did you end up studying archaeology and theology and Jewish studies? How, how did that all happen? It's funny, actually, that you, you asked that. I, I, I didn't do well at school. I bumbled along, bounced along the bottom and scraped through. And then I did that one year at university um, where I bumbled along the bottom and kind of scraped through and I could have gone back and scraped some more or I could have left. So I went over and did my compulsory military service, which we had to do in those days in South Africa, um, and uh, ended up uh, in Pretoria. And for a guy from Cape Town, for anybody from South Africa, you'll understand that was difficult. <laughs> and uh, I was part of an Anglican church there uh, while I was in the military, and I did two things. Firstly, I wanted to... Uh, I figured I'd probably go back to university at some stage. So I wanted to keep my little gray cells ticking over. So I thought, well, let's do something I'm really interested in rather than something that I'm forced to do or have to do, like law. So I decided to study biblical studies and theology by correspondence. And I found actually I was quite good at it and did quite well. And the second thing was that uh, I, I joined this church uh, when I left the army. I joined this church in a, an employment capacity as a youth worker, they were looking for a youth worker. It was an, also an excuse for them to recruit me and enroll me in their training program for the Anglican ministry, which I seriously was training for and considering and, and so on. 
And uh, when, when that period came to an end, it, it came to a head when I realized that I, I really wanted to go back to university. And I didn't know what I wanted to study. And I looked around and thought of various things. And somebody who didn't know me very well, but was in the church, came to me and he said, you know, when I think of you, I think of archaeology. And I don't know what it was. It was it just hit me in the solar plexus. And I've learned to realize that somehow uh, there was God speaking to me. I've learned to recognize the voice of God, sometimes speaking to me through the counsel of others. Mm. And that was one of the early occasions where it was megaphone uh, speaking. And it just was wow. so exciting. Um, and and uh, by that time, I'd moved on from working for the church, although I was still associated with the church, still training for the ministry. And within 24 hours, I'd resigned my job, got rid of my flat, booked a train ride to Cape Town and registered at the University of Cape Town again, where I had been before, to go and study archaeology, social work, and uh, social studies, anthropology, and, and, and Jewish studies. Because I wanted to study archaeology uh, in the land of the Bible. I wanted to study the archaeology of the Bible in the land of the Bible. I just, I realized this was a latent passion of mine. My, my studies in theology and biblical studies had generated this passion for me, which I wasn't aware of. So that was going and on in South Africa. Then. That was going on in South Africa. So you did that, what, that was what two, three year degree was it? That was a that was a three year. I got two degrees actually because the credits that I got from my first university stint and my biblical studies were, were credits. So I got a degree in in biblical studies and theology in South first Africa. up at Cape Town, and then I got a degree in archaeology and Jewish studies. Uh, and with the two of them, I was able to then. Um, apply to go abroad and study biblical archaeology because there was no way to study biblical archaeology in South Africa. Okay, so what but, you're saying is the studies that you did in South Africa yes. raised your desire, awareness, uh, you wanted to continue that. Yes, but in I the, fell in love with the scriptures in a new way, yeah. in an academic way that I hadn't seen before. I, I love the scriptures, but as I started delving into them and studying them and and tearing them apart and and seeing them in context and understanding that, learning a bit of Hebrew and studying Jewish studies, I fell in love with them all over again. Now you moved uh, to Israel That's right. and you continued your studies in biblical archaeology in Israel. Uh, so continue what you were starting to say there. Give us a taste of how moving to Israel enhanced your studies and your understanding. Well, um, I, I, I moved to Israel to study at the Hebrew University. I was accepted into the Hebrew University to do a master's degree, which was great. Um, and um, I mean, I just want to pour. I mean, you said that you weren't very good at school, and here yeah, you are. Well, you know, two for anybody who's and... struggling but knows they're they're better than this, do what you want to do. Do what you want to do, and uh, don't do what you feel you have to do. You can always go back to that later once you've mastered everything, but I, I realized when I studied what I wanted to do, yeah. I wasn't as thick as I thought I was, mm. and that I'd been told, and I started doing very well. So I got into the Hebrew University. I had yeah. to learn Hebrew uh, to start with, so that's, that was fun. That's not an easy language. No, it's not easy. It's not an easy language, but they do, I mean, you know, Jewish people have been going back to Israel from the four quarters of the earth since uh, the, the start of Zionism in 1882. They developed Hebrew. Uh, they revived the ancient language, which was dead, except as a, as a, as a language of, of liturgy, uh, so that people could have one language to speak. Uh, and they're very good at teaching people who don't know how to speak Hebrew to speak Hebrew. They've wow. perfected it. Wow. And I did it on a kibbutz. Um, it was great for four months. 
I then went to uh, an Alpan, as they call it, a Hebrew language school at the university in the summer holidays and learned it again. And then I uh, registered and signed up and started courses. And I was there for four years. I did a master's degree, dissertation and coursework and uh, did very well um, and just realized that I just adored this subject. Hmm. Just absolutely loved it. I got involved with excavation. I excavated at some very important biblical sites. And then um, at the end of my master's degree, I had a choice to make. Do I continue with this? Do I do something else? Because as anybody who's done a master's degree in the humanities will tell you in any one of the humanities subjects that it's not enough. You can get a BA and go and do something or you can do a PhD. But a master's degree is really just a stepping stone to a PhD. And so I needed to work out whether I was going to do that or not. And I was offered a place at Oxford. So I want to I come back to that up. in a second. I just want to, um, because I, I don't think on any of these podcasts I've, I've interviewed anybody who's done any excavations. Uh-huh. In fact, there is a guy, there is a guy at Moorlands um, who did do. But give us a, what were the sites that you excavated? What do you do when you go to do an excavation? Mm. Were there any sort of, did you discover, you know, Noah's Ark or, I mean, what, what did you... What's it like? Give us a taste. Great question. Archaeological excavation is very hard work and a lot of fun. And if you can imagine those two things together, incredibly rewarding and and, and absolutely exhausting together, that's what archaeological excavation is like. Uh, I was fortunate to excavate uh, first up at a Philistine site, Telkasila. Then I went to a site called Bechan in the north of Israel, which is a huge Canaanite site, an Israelite site. I've been to Betshan uh, myself. And I excavated in the Israelite levels at the top of the mound, If for those yes. of your listeners who've been there. Yes. Not the Roman city below, they were excavating that at the same time. Uh, I then went and excavated at some Phoenician sites on the coast and other Israelite sites here and there. Um, the two sites that I excavated most, uh, where I'm most uh, associated with, were Philistine sites. And the Philistines are really cool because we misunderstand them. They get a bad rap. Um, they do. They I mean, are the victims of a bad press. We, I mean, can, I, I, we can even call our bad neighbours. That's oh, right. you Philistines. Philistines, yes, I know. And if you go to the Oxford Dictionary, I don't know if it's still the case, but 20 years ago, the Oxford Dictionary definition for a Philistine was somebody who was uncultured, uncouth. And, uh, you know, we have this opinion or this idea of beer-swilling louts lying around under the tree all day. Um, and that is absolutely not the case. The Philistines were the most sophisticated, the most culturally advanced, the most militarily skilled um, people ever to settle uh, in the land of Canaan. Mm-hmm. They brought with them amazing skills of, of art and architecture and town planning and, and glyptic skills of manufacturing small uh, 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 seals and ceilings and, and, and painting and pottery. Their pottery was fantastic compared to the junk that was being manufactured by comparison in the rest of the country. And so I love to, to study these guys. I love to excavate them. Mm. It's countercultural. It changes people's understanding. And here's the thing about biblical archaeology that's so exciting. When you excavate, you asked about Noah's Ark, we're not excavating great things. We're not discovering mind-blowing stuff. Largely, it's boring. We're excavating people's junk. We're excavating houses that fell down two, three thousand years ago, and we're excavating the basements, the foundations. Uh, we're excavating broken pottery. We're excavating trash pits. So, so what's the point? What's cool about that? We find out about the people 
the ordinary people. Archaeology is much more democratic than history or even the Bible. When people write history books, we write about George Washington, you know, Abraham Lincoln, the kings and queens of England, the great powers of Europe. We write about prime ministers. We, we don't write about, you know, Joe ordinary so. folks. Mm. Joe So. We don't write about stuff like that. I remember seeing a lecture by Jim Dietz, one of the finest uh, teachers I've ever been privileged to have, an American archaeologist of uh, European settlement in North America. And he talked about... Uh, he gave a public lecture about a mining town in Northern California that started in 1880 when they discovered something there that they dug out the ground, and it closed in the 1920s and was abandoned. Uh, and it was 50 years of, of, of mining, and then the town was abandoned, and they went to re-excavate the town. And he had a photograph of all of the residents of the town, perhaps 100 people, from babies up to old folk who were lined up in front of the mine shaft. And he said, that's why I do archaeology, to give these people a voice. They deserve to be heard as much as prime ministers, presidents, kings, entrepreneurs, business people, and, and the movers and shakers that we're used to from history books. Those are the people. There's many more of these people than yeah. there are those. Yeah. And it's these people that made the world go round. And that's what biblical archaeology does. It sets the scene for the biblical stories. It paints the picture. We're excavating the people, the places, and the events in which the biblical stories are set, who make up the background to the biblical stories. Hmm. And it so enhances our understanding of the biblical text. Hmm. It's to make it vivid and exciting and real. Hmm. So I excavated these two Philistine sites at Ekron, and at Ashkelon. I was very privileged to be on the staff of both uh, as part of the uh, publication team of, of the excavations at Ekron. And our understanding of the Philistines and what the Bible says about them was so greatly enhanced by those excavations and by others that I feel privileged just to have played a very small part in that. Wow, amazing. Absolutely incredible. To be, yeah, I mean, because you can look at a place on a map, yeah, Ekron, Ashkelon, whatever, but to actually be there and and uncovering, you know, physically uncovering those places that are mentioned in the Bible. I mean, did it, did it, does the work you've done at biblical archaeology enhance your love of, understanding of, um, knowledge of the Word of God? I guess, well, it's a silly question, really, I'm sure it does. Great question. Great, great question. Here's the thing. I could quite easily spend half an hour sharing with you stuff uh, that we found in archaeological digs that seems to contradict what the Bible says. Hmm. Um, I could bamboozle you with facts that would undermine your faith in the Scriptures. At the same time, I could spend uh, the same amount of time sharing with you how the stuff that I've excavated and that other people have excavated have so enhanced my understanding of and love for the scriptures that I, I would find it impossible to put down. What I'm saying is that we can play with facts right. in the same way that we can play with statistics. Um, we need to be very careful how we use archaeology. It's very tempting as people of faith to try and squeeze the facts of what we find in the ground, to, to, to manipulate it, 
to, to, to enhance, to say what we wanted to say, to fit what our understanding of the scriptures is. And that will be wrong. Quite frankly, there are times when it seems to do exactly the opposite. And I have learned through years of experience, and I've been doing this for 30 years now, that sometimes God calls on us just to let it go, to trust Him. He's bigger than this stuff, okay? <laughs> what we've excavated out the ground is only what we've excavated out the ground. There's a lot more in there. Yeah. So back in the 90s, um, in the late 80s, a group of very clever scholars uh, started saying that the Bible, the Old Testament, was rubbish. It was written very, very late. It was propagandistic literature. It was all made up. Uh, there wasn't any facts in it at all. There may have been a few references to things that may or may not have happened. But basically, it was a propagandistic literature dating from the 2nd and 1st century BC. It was made up in an attempt to try and unite the people who were being oppressed by the Romans to throw them out. One scholar from the University of Sheffield in Britain, I won't mention his name, memorably said that King David is about as historical as King Arthur. Shocking stuff. And guess what? They used archaeology to justify what they were saying. And we were on the rack, those of us who felt that the traditional dating and that the reliability of, of the biblical account was, 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 was under attack. We were on the rack. It's difficult. And I remember when I first got to Oxford, my, uh, the head of my college came to me one day at lunch and he said, Garth, have you seen the front page of the Independent newspaper today? I said, no. He said, there's a new book out that says that David and Solomon never existed. And I said, no, I haven't read it. I need to go and read it quickly. And I did, and I was kind of humiliated. And there was this book by this very clever scholar, and, and he said, if we're going to be honest as historians, we need to start a foundational stuff with what we know, not what we don't know. And what we know is that David and Solomon never existed. They're not mentioned anywhere outside of the scriptures. They're not mentioned in Assyrian records. They're not mentioned in Egyptian records. They're only mentioned in the Bible, and the Bible is unreliable. And so this we know. They never existed. So if we're going to construct a history of Israel, we need to construct one on that foundation. Well, frankly, that foundation is built on sand. But how do you prove it? How do you respond to that? Mm. And so it's very difficult. I could talk my way through it, but really, sometimes you just have to say, Lord, this is over to you. A year later, a year later at excavations at the site of Tel Dan in the north of Israel, a remarkable discovery was made. <laughs> and I know the person who made this discovery. Not the head excavator, I, know, I knew him as well, he's now passed on. But the actual person who made the discovery. It was an inscription which talked about David. And it was clear that it was talking about David. It talked about the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah, except it didn't talk about the kingdom of Judah. It talked about the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of the house of David. And there's no way you can get around the fact that that talks about David. And guess what? It was a foreign king, probably Hazael of Damascus, that wrote that inscription. And we can even place the context of that inscription in the biblical text. It relates to Jehu's revolt and the overthrow of the house of Ahab uh, and Omri. And, uh, of course, you would expect these scholars to say, well, the scientific way of doing these things is to make a proposal, and it's only held to be sustainable as long as there's no evidence against it. But once new evidence arises, you adapt your thesis to take account of the new... No, they said, absolute nonsense. 
the, 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 the bottom line is that David and Solomon never exist. So this cannot be hmm. about da our David. And when they realized it couldn't be about any other David, they turned around and said, well, it has to be a fake. It was the only logical conclusion. They were being utterly logical, but they were being ridiculous. Yeah. And so the point is, <laughs> I was vindicated. I went back to my professor, the head of my college, a year later, and I said, sir, have you seen the front page of The Independent today? <laughs> he said, no. He said, what's going on? I said, do you remember a year ago you told me about that book? He said, yes. And I said, well, here's the deal. They found this thing in Israel, and so I told him about it. Do you know what his response was? And I don't know if he was a believer or not, but he said something remarkable I've never forgotten. He said, why do people mess with the Bible? They always get found out in the end. <laughs> So, you know, I love this stuff. It's yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. It's cool. And so I, here's the thing. Let me just say one more thing. I know we're running out of time, but let me say one more thing. No, we're not. We're fine. If we were able to prove everything in the scriptures through archaeology or by other means, there would be no room for faith. The New Testament says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And if we were able to prove everything, there would be no room for faith. Mm -hmm. And so we would not be able to please God. Mm -hmm. So why prefer it this way? Yeah. Sometimes we finite people, mm -hmm. we imperfect, proud, arrogant beings, we sinful creatures mm -hmm. made in the image of God, sometimes we just have to throw our hands in the air and say, God, I don't understand, but I trust you. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Now, um... You moved uh, to the UK from Israel in 1991 uh, to do a doctorate at Oxford University mm -hmm. in biblical archaeology, and then you returned to South Africa. And I understand that um, it was a very difficult time, five, four or five years um, there. Do you want to talk about that? Not really, but I will. <laughs> it was a difficult time, yes. Before uh, I moved to Israel to go and study at the university in Jerusalem, uh, I got married. I met a girl who was um, a wonderful believer. Uh, we shared our passion for archaeology and the Bible. We actually met in the archaeology department at the University of Cape Town. And we got married and we went to Israel and um, uh, we had a, a daughter in, in Israel, the daughter of my master's studies. And then in Oxford, we had a son, the son of my doctorate. Uh, and when we went back to South Africa, things were difficult, things went sour. Uh, and as sometimes happened, the marriage broke up. It was a dreadfully difficult time for the whole family, mm. and uh, I was broken. And um, yeah, my faith was challenged. My my very existence mm. was challenged. Mm. I suppose it was a very very difficult time, um, and I I hit rock bottom mm. um, in terms of my faith. I always knew that God was there even though it was extremely difficult for me to maintain a personal, exciting, vivid, joyful, triumphant, victorious walk with Jesus every day. No, absolutely not. It was the hardest thing that ever happened to me. Hmm. It broke me, broke me completely. Hmm. But I knew he was there. Hmm. And here's the thing. Hmm. I felt I was in a pit. A deep, dark pit with slimy walls, muddy walls. And I was falling down this pit and I was flailing, trying to hold on to the sides of this pit. And every time I thought I'd got a hold on it, it slipped. 
and I fell further and further and further and further and eventually I hit the bottom and when I got there it was dark it was deep it was cold and I was all alone and then I realized that Jesus was there waiting for me he'd been there all along he said I've been waiting for you to get to this point now I can build you again and he did. He did. Yeah. So to those who are listening to this, who are maybe going through a similar experience, how, how might you encourage them? Don't give up. Mm. When we commit our lives to Jesus, two things happen. We commit ourselves to him. He commits himself to us. Mm. We are unfaithful. He's faithful. He never lets go. Mm -hmm. He never, ever lets go. Yeah. We may think he does, yeah. but when we get to the bottom, mm -hmm. he's there waiting for us. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. And here's the other thing. This is yeah. biblical. Mm. When Jacob got to the Jabbok that fateful night, yeah. sent his family off ahead to Esau, he was facing the worst that could happen to him. Yeah, he was. This was his older brother. Yeah, yeah. Who he stole his birthright yep. and his father's blessing from. He had no idea what was going to happen. Mm. For all he knew, he was going to die mm. the next day. Mm. And he wasn't ready. And he got there. And at the bottom of that pit, all alone, he wrestled with God. And <laughs> remarkably, out of the depths, he cried out and he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And it is. It's a struggle. It's a wrestling match. But the angel wouldn't let him go either. <laughs> <laughs> and touched him to make sure he remembered that. And I, I, I remember years later, Michael Cassidy, that great evangelist to Africa, sharing at a meeting once, and he said, if you, if you are looking for somebody to follow, if you are looking for a role model, if you are looking for somebody to lead you in your Christian life, follow the man or the woman with a limp. They've been there. They've gone through that darkness of the soul. They know what it's like. They've come out the other side. Jacob has become Israel. Follow the man with a limp. Hmm. Yeah, we know what happened to him, and I mean, you know, the, the land of Israel, and yeah. yeah. And today that people is called out of, uh, as, as Israel, called after him. That's yeah. the name. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Now, um, you actually, you remarried in 2003, sorry, 2002, and from 2003 to 2016, uh, you were based at Oxford University mm -hmm. at the Department of Jewish Studies. Uh, you were the administrator of the European Association for Jewish Studies. Right. Um, how would you characterize your time in Oxford over those years? Because of course, after that time, you then went to live where you currently are living in Jerusalem. It's a, mar a remarkable time, really. Um, as you said, I, I was, we were recently married. Uh, my wife is from Denmark. She'd not been married before. So she didn't have the baggage that I had. I think I had enough baggage for both of us. And um, we went to Oxford simply because I'd lived there before, by the way, we met in Jerusalem. Um, she's a nurse and was volunteering in a hospital there. I went there um, after my 
marriage broke up in South Africa uh, to go and uh, do archaeological work and we met and, and, and got married in Denmark, as you said, and then decided to move to Oxford because my children were living nearby. Uh, and we joined a, a church there which was going through a change, a, a well-known evangelical church, rather noisy student-based church as well. And it wasn't St. Aldate's. It was St. Aldate's, oh, yes, in Oxford, yes. That's and where we got married, actually. Well, there you go. Yeah. It's amazing how many people that church has touched. And the <laughs> David McInnes? Yes, David McInnes was there when I was a doctoral student, but he'd moved on by this time. Yeah. Charlie Cleverly was the vicar. We started the same, we joined the church the same week that Charlie and Anita Cleverly uh, took on the position of, of rector, and, and, and we were there uh, ever since. And we made it clear quietly, that we um, had a special call to Israel. I don't know if I've mentioned that, but we do. Um, I, I sensed a call to understand the, what the scriptures say about Israel, God's purposes for Israel and the Jewish people, uh, from uh, the time I was in Pretoria, really. Um, and I just felt God downloaded stuff to me which was special and precious, and I've hardly been able to keep my mouth shut about it since to those who are heaviest to hear. And sometimes to those who don't have ears to hear as well. <laughs> and so this remained important and precious to us. And of course, we had the experience, both my wife and I, of living in Israel uh, and of, 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 of having that personal experience there. But uh, it, it, it wasn't part of what their vision was for the church at that stage. So we uh, found a couple in a village near us who were also into praying for Israel. Uh, and the Jewish people. We started a prayer group uh, with them in our home and in their home and eventually moved to their home. And uh, it was very successful. We met regularly. We drew, drew people from all over the place. We realized there were a lot of people in Oxford in churches who'd been praying for Israel for years, but were all alone. There, there was nobody they could relate to. There was nobody who understood this stuff. Nobody was preaching about it. Nobody was dealing with it. Nobody was embracing it. Nobody was trying to understand it. But they had this thing, and they thought they were the only people in the whole of Oxfordshire who were praying for Israel. And then they heard about this prayer group and they started to come. And then after three years, we were approached by the leadership of the church at St. Aldate's and asked to start a prayer group in the church itself mm. to pray for Israel and the Jewish people oh. and uh, to arrange a couple of tours to Israel as well, which we did. And so we uh, left with the blessing of the prayer group we'd started in Kumna, uh, which carried on for many years. Uh, and we started a prayer group at St. Aldate's. And I'm very happy to say that uh, we led uh, that prayer group until 2016 when we were called to go and work in Israel. Mm. And uh, we handed it over to other leadership. The prayer group is going today. We were just there a, a few days ago. There were uh, over 20 people there and uh, still praying and moving mm. on with the Lord and praying deeply and intently mm. uh, and even entering into intercession. And the wonderful thing about that group was we didn't just pray for Israel and the Jewish people, we prayed for uh, our churches, we prayed for Oxford, we prayed for Britain, we prayed mm. for Europe, mm. we prayed many, many times as the Lord led for the nations and people who surround Israel. And uh, we have seen many times the answers to our prayers yeah. um, in ways that really it would be inappropriate to mm. share because yeah. some of these things are secret. But God shows you the treasures of darkness, says the prophet, things that are secret, things that are hidden. He just lifts the, the curtain 
uh, as it were, and then drops it down just enough for you to see mm-hmm. that you know you're on the right track. Keep going. Well mm-hmm. done, good and faithful servant. The job's not done. Mm-hmm. Keep it up. So I'm very excited about that, and and we were able to do that for all that time. So it was great. And I was based in the Department of Hebrew and Jewish Studies. Yeah. Wow, how cool is that? Yeah. So I was able to embrace the academic side of Jewish studies and archaeology and biblical studies at the university as mm-hmm. well. Fantastic. Now, since 2016, you've been the executive director of CMJ in Israel. That's correct. Church's ministry among the Jewish people. Yes. Um, just briefly, tell us, give us an insight into what CMJ do in Israel. What, C- what's the purpose? Okay. CMJ, the Church's ministry amongst Jewish people, is the oldest Protestant evangelical organization ministry in the whole Middle East. Uh, We got there before anybody else did. It was founded in 1809 in the East End of London uh, by a bunch of evangelicals who really were the inheritors, the heirs of the Wesleyan revival uh, of a generation or two before, Uh, as well as some German Jewish believers in Jesus who came to England. And the two of them had compassion on these very poor Uh, Jewish uh, immigrants originally, but the Jewish community in the East End of London who didn't largely speak English, they spoke Yiddish. They weren't integrating into British society. They didn't have opportunity because British society was largely Christian, didn't know what to do with them, looked away. Uh, They were kind of invisible, but they were very much there. And the, the founders of CMJ wanted to do two things. They wanted to reach out to them with good works. They wanted to help them integrate into British society, teach them English, teach them trades, so that they could become part of the country in which they'd settled. At the same time, they saw them as sheep without a shepherd. They saw that they needed Jesus. They needed to get to know their own Jewish Messiah. Hmm. And isn't it true that down the centuries, even after the Reformation, The church has struggled to know quite what to do about the Jews. And this was especially the case then. One of our founders was William Wilberforce. Others came from the Clapham sect that many of your listeners will know about. Later on, Lord Shaftesbury was president of of what was then called the London Jews Society. Uh, So CMJ has a very distinguished heritage. And we came to uh, what was then Palestine, uh, the Ottoman uh, uh, territory uh, in, in 1833. We sent out a missionary named John Nicolson, a Dane actually, who was sent out from England. And he set up shop in Jerusalem. But one of the first things he did was he wrote back to the committee in London and he said, look, if we are going to lead Jewish people to faith in Jesus, uh, they're going to want a place to worship. And I don't think they want to going, to going to want to go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So we need to buy a piece of land and we need to build a church that is suitable and available for Jewish believers to worship in. How prophetic, how prescient, how wonderfully uh, um, uh, prophetic of this guy. And so they bought a piece of land just inside Jaffa Gate on the slopes of Mount Zion, uh, which is our main area today of our compound. They built a church, um, which is an Anglican church. Of course, it's an Anglican church. It was a British mission. Uh, And yet inside the church, the stained glass windows, the furniture had nothing that could alienate Jewish people had nothing that would chase them away. It looks more like a synagogue inside than it does a church. Uh, There is Hebrew writing on the altar. The Hebrew writing says, do this in remembrance of me. But nevertheless, it's in Hebrew. Uh, The names of of the Trinity from the Hebrew scriptures from the Old Testament are in the stained glass windows. So we've got Yahweh, Adonai, in one of the stained glass windows, Emmanuel uh, in a second one, and Ruch 
Elohim, the Spirit of God who brooded over the waters in Genesis chapter 1 in creation, uh, in the third stained glass window. So not only did the church not have any furnishings which could alienate the Jewish people, but also it was tremendously able to be used for evangelism. And so CMJ has been in the land ever since. We got ourselves involved in good works, just like in London. We were the first to bring modern medical treatment, modern doctors. We built the very first clinic in Jerusalem, the first modern medical treatment. Hmm. When we first came to, to Jerusalem in the 1830s, one-third of the population of the city contracted what they called the plague in those days. And many of them died. Indeed, if you look, there's a plaque in the church of the architect of the church who came out from London to see how the building was going in 1836. He died within one month because he contracted the Jerusalem plague. He was 26 years old. So this is our heritage. Mm. We built the first clinic. We built the first hospital. We then decided to build a bigger one in the 1890s, uh, about a kilometer away in what is now downtown West Jerusalem, uh, and in, in the prophets, in the street of the prophets. And uh, when we built it, all the Jewish community would go there to be treated. The leaders of the Jewish community were scandalized because the people got evangelized as well. And they started trying to forbid the people to go to the hospital. They said, if you go there and you die, we won't bury you in a Jewish cemetery. The people had a choice. Do I go there and get healed or do I not go there and die and get buried in the Jew? I'm going to get healed. Within 20 years of us opening that hospital, there were nine hospitals in the street of the prophets. Eight of them were Jewish and there was ours. Do you know that's like provoking them to jealousy? Mm. We welcomed that. We embraced that. We also opened schools. At one stage, we had a girls' school at Christchurch, which was the only girls' school in the whole Middle East. Jewish families used to send their daughters from Jewish communities in Baghdad, Damascus, and Alexandria to our school in Jerusalem to get a good Jewish girls' education at Christchurch in Jerusalem. Can you imagine it? And the third thing we did was as people got saved, as people became followers of Jesus, they got ostracized from their communities. So we opened a workshop, a, a, a place where people could learn trade so that they could go and open shops, open businesses, and, and manufacture things mm. so that they could support themselves and their families. And so we became known as an organization that with the one end did good works and with the other end brought the gospel. During the mandatory period, we were known as the mission. After the Holocaust, of course, that all changed. The pain and the suffering of the Jewish people was allied with the rejoicing and the victory that was celebrated in 1948 with the War of Independence, the Declaration of Independence, the actual founding of the State of Israel, the first time that there had been an independent Jewish state for 2,000 years. And so we had to be very discreet. And discretion is one of the gifts of the Spirit, I think. And we had to use, change the way we spoke. It didn't change our desire to see Jewish people learn about Jesus and become followers of Jesus. And we still do that. We have now a threefold ministry here and wherever CMJ has branches throughout the world. Each of the uh, three areas of ministry begin with the letter E. There's e e education. And we see ourselves as having a unique calling to educate the Gentile church on the Jewish roots of the Christian faith, the Jewish character of the scriptures, and the Jewishness of Jesus our Savior. Uh, and there's a lot of ignorance in the church about that. The second thing we do 
is we have a call to encouragement, particularly encouraging the Jewish people, standing with them wherever they're found in the world, particularly where there's opposition. And in these days of rising anti-Semitism, once again, there is a very, very strong call on us to stand firm. That means that when the missiles start falling, when things start to go bad, we're not the first down at the airport to catch the plane out. We stand with them, arm in arm, in lockstep, and we don't waver, we don't budge. And the third thing we do is that uh, is evangelism. We're still called to show the Jewishness of Jesus to his own Jewish brothers. Mm. Evangelism in Israel is not like it is anywhere else. We're not called to go and stand on street corners and hand out tracks or play nice worship songs or knock on doors. Don't get me wrong. I'm not vilifying that or denigrating that. Mm -hmm. There's a place for that. Mm -hmm. But we have a calling to demonstrate to the Jews from whom we got our salvation. Jesus says to the woman at the well, salvation is of the Jews. And we have a call to say to the Jews from whom we got our salvation, thank you. Mm. What we have is yours. Mm. And for 2,000 years, we've taken Jesus, who was the ultimate Jew. And we have dressed him in Jewish clothes. We've filled him with Jewish traditions, we've, uh, with Gentile traditions. We've given him Jew, uh, Gentile clothes, I beg your pardon. We've given him a Gentile language. We've turned him into this Gentile person so that he is unrecognizable to the Jewish people to whom he belongs. And it is time now for us to, to give him back with thanks and say, he's yours. Mm. And just as he calls us to follow him, he's calling you. And we at CMJ, I think because of our history, we have a unique ability to do that. And so that is what we seek to do. Yeah. Education, encouragement and evangelism. Mm. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, um, turning to, we talked about the Bible and your love, your love of the Word of God and, and uh, you know, the, the biblical archaeology side of that. Do you have a favourite Bible book or character? I do. I love Luke. I love Luke. You know, people say, well, all the scripture was written by Jews except Luke and Acts. Uh, and, of course, that's absurd for two reasons. Firstly, Luke is a doctor, for goodness sake. Every good doctor you know is Jewish, so Luke must have been Jewish. He's, he's a doctor. Do you think Paul would have had a Gentile doctor? No. But the other thing, more seriously, is that when you read Luke, you see that Luke has an understanding of the Torah. That's better than Matthew. That's better than Mark. Uh, he quotes it more. And, and not only does he quote it, but he alludes to it a lot more. And when you know the Hebrew Scriptures, when you understand the Torah, when you start digging into it, and then you read the Gospel of Luke, you see there are these hints to the, to the Torah in Luke that are simply not there in the other two books. So I love that, because, and in Acts too, because it's vivid, it's exciting. Luke is a journalist. Luke is a, is a historian of, of immense credibility. And I find him exciting and vivid and truthful and reliable and honorable. So not that the other scriptures are not. I just think he's great. Uh, and in terms of my uh, scripture do verse... A, do you have a Bible verse? That you I do. I do. I know it's a tough question to ask. No, people. it's not. For me, it's not. Shortly after we started with CMJ, the Lord drew my attention to the book of Romans, chapter 1 and verse 16, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And I love that. That on its own would be just glorious because it's not only a, 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 an embracing of the gospel, but it's also a warning. Mm. 
that we should not be ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says, because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Mm. Isn't that fantastic? Mm. The grace of God poured forth through Jesus to everyone who believes. But he goes on mm. to say it's to the Jew first yeah. and also to the Gentile. Yeah. And so I love that. It's a reminder that even Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, the one that God used to take the gospel to the rest of the world outside of Israel. Never forgot that the gospel was, is, and always will be to the Jew first and then to the Gentile and also to the Gentile. It's not a matter that they're better than us or they deserve it more. It's just that that's the way God works. Yeah. The gospel comes through the Jews mm. to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. That's his plan for salvation for the whole world. Yeah, and for those of you that want a really good place to go to for a clear explanation of the gospel, I would recommend 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 9. You can look that up later. Garth, it has been an absolute joy and a pleasure to talk to you. I sense that we could have talked for another three hours at least. <laughs> would have been fun. <laughs> but no, bless you in your work, and uh, may God protect you in that. And uh, it's been a real joy to have you on the podcast today. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Nigel. You've been listening to the Bible and Me podcast from Precept Ministries UK. By leaving a rating or review, you can help us to reach a wider audience with the good news of God's grace and plans for his people. But otherwise, until next time, we hope you have a blessed week from all of us here at PMUK. UK.